Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussein. Before I introduce today's very esteemed guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find the Blood Brothers podcast on all the major audio platforms. And of course, for those of you who love watching the videos, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Um, I'm very excited about today's guest uh, for various reasons. Um, today's guest is a, a lawyer by profession. It's what he's most well known for, but he's also uh, known for various civil liberties and social justice cases. He has made a very recent appearance uh, on 24 Hours in Police Custody, and that's none other than my dear brother and friend, Atik Malik from Liberty Law. Asalaamu Alaikum. Welcome, Salaam. Atik, how are you doing? Good, thank you for having me on. No, no, no. Jazakallah khair for coming on, and I think it was long overdue. Yes, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Ha, has 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 things? How's your drive down from Luton? It was good, nice, relaxed Sunday afternoon. You know, it doesn't get better than that. No when, traffic. And when just when was the last time you visited Bedford? My children go to Bedford school, so I'm here basically every day doing school. Right. Okay, so that Bedford school. Yeah, mashallah, mashallah. Um, I want to kick off today's conversation about you're Luton born and bred, right? That's right. Yeah, I'm Bedford born and bred. Um, at any point in your life, did you ever live in Berry Park? We or around live, the vicinity, yeah, or around on the, the vicinity. outskirts of Bury Park. Yeah, yeah. So, with us, with my family, and with majority of um, the families in Luton, a lot of us started off living in or around the surrounding areas of Bury Park um, because that's where, you know, the um, socio-economic context for migrants when they came to uh, England mm. turned out to be. You know, Luton was an industrial town, and people lived in pockets. You know, our parents used to live one house used to have. Five or six 100%. people living together, yeah, and that formed various bonds between people, and those people went ahead and had families, and then families formed bonds between them. I know many people that I grew up with who were not actually my cousins, but because of our parent parents' bonds, as they grew up in this country, um, we we treated each other as you know as, as blood brothers. Mm. <laughs> Ricky, I, like, I like that. Look, the, I, I think you know, there's loads of, I know you mentioned socioeconomics and we will go on to that later on in the show. But you know when Bedfordians, or at least those who come from Queen's Park, when we think of Luton or Berry Park, there is a strong connection. There. Mm. Uh, and and there's, there's many instances, in K, whether it's charity cricket tournaments, whether it's more kind of the more illicit trade aspect of it between the two towns and areas, there's relatives and tribes who are We've got mm. families here that are linked up or related to Berry Park and so forth. So Lutonians, and especially those from Berry Park, always have a warm place yes. in Bedford, and especially on the podcast, because after Bedfordians, our next A6 cousins are you folk. Yeah. Um, let's talk about growing up in Luton a bit, right? I asked you off camera before we started, Denby or Chorney, but you said... Icknield. Tell me a bit about growing up in well, school in Icknield. It's very interesting because I went to Denby... Uh, infants and junior school, which is predominantly Asians because in our Asian areas. And in Luton at that time, the best school was the predominantly white school. Of course. So my uh, dad said, look, I want obviously the best for you. It was outside of Cashman area and he applied to that school, which was Icknield. I applied and I got in. But then all of my friends in my class, they found out and they said, we want to go too, if you're going. Mm. And so... When I went to Icknield, it was the first time that predominantly white school had an influx of approximately 30 children from an Asian school go there. 
And it was a massive sell shock for all of us and for all of them because we had always been surrounded by Asian children. We'd never been surrounded by, you know, the white counterparts and their way of talking. And when you say Asian here, you're talking probably Pakistani, yeah? And Bengali. Yeah. And Bengali, yeah. okay. And when over there, it was and the school, not just the children, but the teachers found it hard to understand us. Mm. To the extent, I remember that we were in year nine and we, ha- and we used to still chill together as brothers in a group. And we had an intervention meeting where the science teacher put us in our class. So we don't like the way you lot don't integrate with the rest of the school. No not that the rest of the school is racist to us, which they were. We you, had, you lot are not doing enough to mix. Yeah, mix with them. Wow. And why don't you mix with girls? Oh. Are you what's, what's the problem? Okay. You should be. Why don't you do this? And it was funny because the racial narrative we see today, I, I grew up with those narratives. I saw it. And I can confidently say there were many teachers that, whether they knew it or not, had very strong racist narratives. We saw... Not covert, but overt racism as we were growing up um, from uh, students and teachers. I remember the um, headmaster at Ikhneald once giving um, a speech. And he, believe it or not, he was a magistrate in, in Bedford and Luton Magistrates Court. It's all many okay. years. Saying, so I don't know what his point of his speech was. And in the speech, he mentions, uh, we all know, all the Asians smell of curry. You know? No way. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting there thinking, what the hell? You know? Um, and in a way, I think that's what helped shape me in that's terms crazy. of, you know... Was there any reaction when you said that? To us, we were gobsmacked. And not our parents, it was different. We'd go home and tell our parents, and they'd be like, no, no, respect your teachers, don't create a hoo-ha. Respect yeah. your teachers, don't create a hoo-ha. And we went through a lot in that uh, school until we got to year nine. And then it just got to a stage where we thought, you know what, we're not going to take this anymore. And the next racist that came up to us, one of the brothers just banged him out. Had to be done. It had to be done. <laughs> And then the next one got banged out, and then it just started kicking off, and then we were the bad guys. Okay. Not that you're defending yourself, you're the bad just guys. About the trouble causers. Yeah, troublemakers. You know, in a school of... Ikhnil was the one of the biggest schools in Luton, because it traditionally was a boy's girl and a, and a girl's... Sorry. Boy's school and a girl's school. Mm. So it was two schools, which had been made into one. Okay. So the capacity of the school was almost double the size of any other school there, because the buildings were built up for, for two schools, but it's actually operating now as one school. Mm. Um... And so we were a, mon- a massive minority, but yet we were seen as the biggest troublemakers. It was shocking. Crazy. Yeah. And I think those early days helped for me to shape a lot of things about actually experiencing racism over and covert. We're over- talking early 90s here, aren't we? We're talking, um, yeah, early 90s. Early mid-90s. Yeah, I finished high school 94. Yeah. So okay. early 90s, for some of us, is a very long time ago. For some of us, it's not. Mm. For some of us, 90s, the early mm. 90s, mm. It just predates the millennium. You know, yeah. we're in 2021. It's not actually that long ago. Yeah. And we've, we're, we're, talk, and we're talking about blatant over and covert racism yeah. going on. And then I think that journey of experiencing it for two or three years, taking it all, and then turning around and giving them a two-finger salute and saying, you know what, do what you want. We're not going to take this. Mm. I think that did experience you, helped shape you, us. Did you ever future. bang anyone out? Oh, yeah, we had a few today. <laughs> but the situation is this. Yeah. What would happen is... Yeah. They, you would be walking along the corridor and get shoulder barged hard, yeah? Yeah. And that was normal for them. They thought, yeah, we're, we're you know. For the first two, three years, you take it. One day, a day would come where you just think, you know what, I can't take this anymore. 100%. And when you answer back, because they're bullies, they come up in a group and try and attack you. Of course. And to defend yourself, you might hit them or something. And when that happens, suddenly they're all running off crying. Of course. To the teachers first. 100%. And this is what we grew up with. 
And to be honest with you, if you go through the, as we journey through life, it's never really changed. Because when you go into real life, you see the way politics works, you see the way the media works. It's no different to what we saw in high school. It's and just they, on a different level playing field. And they bully us. The same characters are there. The same narratives are there. And so, you know, and for us as as Muslims, as Asians in this country, um, you know, our process of challenging that is there. Mm. That's good. Look, I, I, there's so much to talk about, but, but let me just pick on this, right, yeah? You know, in most uh, Asian majority Cities or areas So if we take Birmingham Some parts of Nottingham Luton and Bedford Are good examples Peterborough There's loads of these cities Which have strong uh, South Asian Slash Muslim presence Yeah And if you go into These towns and cities And speak to some of the elders It's kind of the same narrative Yeah Our forefathers landed here Very compliant mm. uh, Hard working migrants Exactly what you described Then there's the first generation Who were educated here These lot are the ones That First face the brunt of the racism What you just, just described yeah. But there's also a similar thing Happening outside of the school context And that is There's drugs There's criminality There's prostitution There's just everyday weekend bullying by drunkards uh, our, our fathers and uncles were taxi drivers Were restaurant workers Were takeaway workers And they faced a lot of madness In, that, in those early periods And one, of, one theme that I've kind of noticed right, Is that what Happened in a lot of areas Is that once you fought the racists Once you've battered them You fought the racists You kind of Represented yourself Or marked that this area Will not no longer take any BS What happened very quickly In many areas bro Is that It morphed into intra Apnea beef Intra-Muslim beef Right That was the case in Bedford I know that was the case in Luton And that's the case in Birmingham And many other places Where it started off In a noble struggle A rightful struggle Against racists and criminals in your area But then what tends to happen very quickly Is that we become the very uh, criminals that we moved out of I know I'm not making sweeping generalizations I'm talking about a trend that I've noticed Why do you think that is the case? If it is the case Again, this is another narrative that we have to be very careful about And let's analyse it very, very slowly Let's, let's rewind first Let's rewind it then Where did we start off from? So, first generation arrive, hard workers Generally compliant Yeah Within that first generation A second lot arrived Who weren't born here But they arrived as young teenagers And were schooled here My dad falls into that He came here in 66 At the age of 7 Went through the English schooling yeah. system Yeah And then in between that you Then you got first generation emerging Who are born here They're experiencing racism at a high level They're coming from a very poor background so the schools they're going to, they're surrounded by working class people from England who are from certain backgrounds. And they're, so they're, they're learning the identity of British. What is British, yeah? This has you know, always been a question that the politicians have thrown at us, whatever. Growing up as a minority, ethnic minority, which I like to term as global majority, but someone from a global majority background, growing up in this country, socioeconomic context at the bottom, who are they surrounded by? Other people who are into crime and this and that of a certain background. Okay. So when they're searching their identity, they're latching on to their way of doing things. So you're saying those things rubbed off? They rubbed off because they're searching for an identity, aren't they? They're young. They're, they're not from Pakistan, Bangladesh, but they've got the heritage. Their parents mm. are teaching them something else. They feel like outcasts and outsiders. They want to learn 
And the first place you learn is at school and people around you. Of course, primary how to do things. Yeah, yeah. And we're not at private schools or or people or with privileged people. They're on the ground with people from broken homes or very low poverty level or industrial background, whatever. Mm. With all sorts of their own issues going on, and it's all interacting. So they're learning from that, and that, and then there's learning. Oh, you know um, how people are making money on that ground level as well. At that time, you've got very strong ra- overt racism going on to the f- extent that the Bury Park area, which we talk about, um, on the weekends, no Asian or black was allowed to walk in Bury Park. And this is the irony of it. Because the footy? Yeah, because the football hooligans and all the rest of it said, nobody's allowed to walk here. Okay? If you do, we're going to batter you. Mm. And then you've got these young, first-generation-ish um, Asians um, growing up. And they realise very quickly that either you get battered or you listen, or you stand up for yourself. So yeah. they beat up a few people at school, stood up for themselves, and in doing that, just like we did, they come together as a group, cool. they form their own bonds, <coughs> and in that group, they're surviving. They're having to survive in this alien country, and surviving means a physical side of it, which is defending the community when people are attacking, and to defend a the community, they've got to get a bit raw, they're living on the street level yeah, yeah, yeah. here and the street level of living it also includes street level of hustling and making a living and this is where it all comes together and so the product of all of that were these working class Asian youths who might hustle a bit to get their identity you know they you know have girls and be like the British but have their own identity but at the same time not taking the crap from the racists mm. and battering them so that's all happening okay we then fast forward to what you're saying where we are now, because obviously then you've got a bit of unity. Of course. But this is a group smaller. People aren't linking together on the basis of their family uh, or brotherly or whatever yeah, yeah, kinship. Yeah. They're linking together on the basis of um, ethnicity. Yeah. So you've got not just Pakistanis, you've got Sikhs, Hindus, black, everybody sort of coming together mm. and standing together as a, a global majority, like mm. as our term it, community against the wider white uh, population. As years go on, the the um, community grows. Of course, where the elders have been doing certain criminality and they've become heroes in the eyes of the community, it's not, you know, unforeseeable. But then some of the next generation of youngsters growing up are looking at them thinking, yeah, that's how you hustle. If you want a fancy car, you want a big house, that's the way to do it. So inadvertently they became role models and the younger gener- generation a lot of people started following them Agree with and that you, takes bro. us into another important discussion of why positive role models etc are important no, no, I agree but with you. you can't blame them it is the product of what we had to go through okay but now you're through let's fast forward to what you're saying and on the ground what we actually see what you have to remember as well we come from a very large extended family network uh, uh, network yeah we do just because the family network has one or two drug dealers in it doesn't mean that the whole family, extended family, are drug dealers, okay? So you've got a situation now where, like it or not, family members do stick together. You've got families now with all of these pockets everywhere, just like all majority of the world out there. You go to like, you know, Latin America, you go to, um, I don't know, South, South America, I mean, anywhere, like even Europe, Africa, whatever. Mm. The majority of the world operates on kinship and extended families. It's only in Britain that people think, um, you know, they're born and they think, who's the parents? And they carry mm. on. Mm. Extended families. All kinship, family, tribe. Yeah. And it all comes from that. Yeah. 
So let's say, for example, you've we see this over time. We do we run cases nationally. You know, our majority of my practice started off in East London, and to be honest with you, I'm operating in East London. Majority of my clients were not black or brown; they were actually white. Okay, okay. and um, what the situation is, you might get someone has a fight with someone, even if there's a drug background or not, but that fight might happen, and with them because they operate in you know extended families. There might be four of them in a car, all cousins. They might kick off with four other people who are cousins. And then it goes off. Then it goes off. And you've I got see. this whole group of people fighting. And the narrative is, oh, yeah, the old drug dealers fighting. But it's not just terrible. It's much more complicated than that. So what you're saying in, in, in simple terms is that it could be a case they got one or two shotters in a big family. They've got rollet and drums with someone else. But because of that kinship tie, it can't end up everyone getting involved. And you've got a massive punch up. Or even better, beyond that, you might have one or two drug dealers in the family. The punch up is not nothing to do with them. It's to do with two professionals or students. They've got involved. They're not going. Let's let's take it further. They haven't even got involved. Okay. But the name's there. Ocha. Yeah. His cousin. His, his cousin. Nephew, that his family. Yeah, yeah. And then next thing you know, the narrative is there, right? Hmm. Uh, and the whole thing gets confused. For some reason, when it comes to black or brown people, it's much more easier to get things confused and lean it all towards criminality mm. than it is the other communities in England. No, no, hundred percent. So I, I would always treat that with a pinch of salt of what people think they know, what the narrative is, what we see on the ground. On the ground, as a lawyer, I've been in the game for almost twenty years now. I've worked all the way across the country today. Yes, of course, I deal with black and brown criminals and white criminals. But if you talk to me statistically, when I was working in East London and nationally, the national picture is not black or brown people. No, it's predominantly offensive. white. When this grooming thing happened, majority of the cases that I'd come across in my career white. predominantly white. Yep. And so when Sajid Javid said, I'm going to do a report, I couldn't stop laughing. I remember in Luton, mm. community leaders saying to me, Atik, um, the police, I said, don't make too much noise because they've got grooming cases going on. And it's going to, if they come out with it, it's going to tarnish your community. And I said, that's rubbish. Mm. I can put money down, that's rubbish. Because first of all, if there was a case, they would, they would come out. They can't hold it down for your community. Yeah, that's yeah, rubbish, yeah. right? Trying to censor you. And then when Sajid Javid's report came out, what happened? Mm. Word for word, what I said yeah. was the truth. And you know what I did then? Every single community leader mm. who I'd spoken to in Luton and aside who said that to me, I sent them all a message. Mm. And I said, shame on you for buying into that narrative. Of course. The biggest racist in our country, Sajid Javid, mm. has gone and done this. And look, I know that wasn't his intention. And it went you know, in his face. Right. So, so I mean, I mean, let's, let's, let's put us... Look, I'm not... I'm not putting away the socioeconomic uh, context about of these situations, these realities that exist. I accept it. I agree with you on this part. But if we were to, from an intra-Muslim, intra-Apne perspective, truly look at it and look at, forget about the early 90s, late 90s, we've gone through that early generation. We understood how we've kind of got here now. But if we look at the situation now, 2021, last mm. five, 10 years, and we look at, some of the uh, drug dealers. Um, look, I want to put a disclaimer out there as well for the viewers and listeners. Look, yeah, most of the crimes that we talk about, me and Attic, we're going to talk about today, and, and generally speaking, statistically, it's majority white Britons generally anyway. Whether it's uh, narcotics, whether it's domestic abuse, whether it's sexual grooming, you will find the vast majority are the white Caucasian Brits. But we are, because this is a Muslim podcast, we want to talk about our community. Can't always blast the other community. We know that, but we're going to talk from an intra-Muslim point of view. When we see, when I see, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, uh, brothers who deal drugs. Right? We may know their families. We may be related to them. 
um, whatever the case may be, and they come from good families. Yeah, Attic. that's right. Their, their dad owns a property or many properties. Many properties. Yeah? Majority, yeah. Like we're not even talking about the one property anymore. No, it's no. many properties. Many pro- property portfolio. Exactly. You're doing well. Yeah. You're not in a concrete jungle in an estate shutting because your dad's not around because your mom's working two jobs. It's not that. Yeah. You don't no. need that money. You don't need that. So why? So if it's all about socioeconomics, what happens there then? Ego. I've actually asked this question and the answer when I've had dis- detailed discussions. Yeah. It comes down to his ego. Even their own friends and family have said, actually, brother, you're right. All it was, he just wanted that, like, that street reputation for people to think, oh, he's a big bad boy. When he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to, and he isn't. And why isn't he? Because when he was at home, his mama used to come and tuck him in every night before he goes to sleep. Yeah. Mm. When he was selling drugs, he didn't ask his mama or his sister, mom or sister, what do you think? How should I dress drugs? Suddenly, when they're nicked here, it's the mum and sister rigging up trying to run the cases, okay? Crying on the phone. And then forget them crying on the phone. Mate is crying on the phone over minor little things, really like a baby, yeah? Mm-hmm. And I get angry. I say, listen, mate, you're supposed to be a drug dealer. Gangster definition. Be a gangster then, innit? You're in prison. That's your occupational hazard. What are you crying about? I said, you listen to these drug rappers, you know, gangster rappers, um, you know, Biggie Smalls, Tupac, whatever. Where in the rapping does it talk about the bit when they're sitting inside crying like the way you're crying? Uh. Be a gangster now. So why do you think they're crazy. crying? Why do you think they break down? Because we've had these, I've had these stories as well. They break down yeah. in prison. So what Because why this whole thing about being a gangster is just a, 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 a bravado, isn't it? Mm. Is If they're not, they, like you said, those people you're talking about, that example, are people who haven't come from a bad background, so you know, like, they've only gone into it just to make a name for themselves on the street. And just to just ego, just to clarify, we're not talking about the at older seniors who no, no. somewhere even though, I know we we're talking about off camera. There was at least some kind of honor amongst thieves of a particular generation. Mm. I'm talking about this kind of new generation, yeah. guys who don't come from broke families, no. guys who don't come from broken families, no. guys who come from good families, yeah. guys whose parents or, or dads own properties, businesses. You don't need to be doing that, my no, brother. But yet you are. You're still on the trap. You're still doing everything. It doesn't make sense. So the socio-economic argument. Maybe like a false flat on the face when it comes to yeah, these examples. Yeah, for those people, yeah. 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 But those people are not in the majority, even though we might know a lot of them because we live in the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, if you go back to what you, the point you made, if you go into a stats level thing, uh, stats-wise, the percentage, you're not even talking 1%, right? Yeah. They're in the minority. And a lot of them you see is quite young as well. Yes. But normally um, college or early university level, maybe even late high school level. Mm. And it's all about, in a way, you could say, they're going through their journey of life of, Finding their identity Because mm. everyone Let's be frank Everyone wants to be loved and respected yeah. And people go through this process at school Where unfortunately Sometimes the cool guy Has certain attributes yeah. And they've obviously latched on to This thinking That to be the cool guy um, I need to have this persona And mm. do these things So they dress in that way Talk in that way um, But really Their background doesn't justify it Because they're coming from a very you know, they come from a privileged background and not a background on the streets. Uh, Mosin, uh when I mentioned these names, bleep them on the podcast, yeah? So obviously growing up um, in our area, we had two guys. And Allah have mercy on him, passed away a couple of years ago. And in Luton, we heard this, that, this, that. All oh, constantly hearing names, right? So growing up, I ain't gonna lie to you, bro. Those were even we've not even seen any of them. We're just thinking, who is this bandar with this name? 
Yeah, hardcore. They were our role models. These were the guys, unfortunately, we grew up thinking, yeah, these were bad man. These man, they protected the ilaka. And now. And that takes us back to what I said earlier. Yeah, they protected yeah. the ilaka. You know what? I want to be like them, man. Yeah. Yeah. Because they see the amount of respect people gave them. Yeah. But that's not the case anymore. No. So. I I just I'm just baffled at it, bro. I just but I just get baffled sometimes because, you know, if we look at the the elders, mm. yeah, who were no angels by any stretch of the mile, but they did certain things which demanded respect for them. So we always grew up knowing that these lot were the ones that fought the races, bust up the hooligans, and look after the area. Yeah, that's not the case anymore. No. Um. So I always wonder, like, how do you justify? But if you tell me it's like an ego thing, it's a reputation thing that they they just do it because they want to do it. Want to be cool. That's crazy, man. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so this kind of dealing with um, our player clients. But there's also, if I pause, there's also no, another no. thing. Yeah. Let's say um, you got a school. Yeah. Normal school, and you've got a bunch of kids there, right? Yeah. Let's say there's a group of kids who come from a um, very poor background. Because remember, like uh, it's something we discussed off camera, how in our communities people generally don't like to talk about mental health. Hundred percent. Or various other. Issues that go in the, in the home So they go undetected So you might think Our community hasn't got those problems But you peel that layer away You realise we do And it's a massive problem right So you're in school Let's say there's 10 kids there And 10 of those kids do come from A very bad socioeconomic context Background so They won't say it But they're drug dealing To Achoo, survive Okay And they come from that background Okay Tika But because this kid Comes from a nice background But he's in the school with them So to fit in with the cool gang He's going to start moving He starts moving Okay Crazy, no, no, no. I, 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 you, as you said that, two examples of my childhood came, came yeah. in. Boom! It was exactly that. So guys who actually are not socioeconomically struggling, because the rest of the boys mm. are on that flex, they jump onto it. Jump on, and that most—that's probably the most common example. And then to impress them, mm. that's where the ego kicks in, mm. because they want to be like their friends. They can't tell their friends about the cushy lifestyle dad's created for them. You know, with all the property portfolio, yeah. because Matey, who's the coolest guy there, he he's doesn't know who his dad state. is. Yeah, right. Or his dad died, or his yeah. dad moved on, got married from Pakistan, and then got married to two, three Gorian. He's gone, mate. You know, all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah? but all sorts of different and yeah. all stuff we don't know about, right? But to fit in, he needs to be more like that guy because he's in that environment. Mm, that's crazy. Man. So then, the social economic context has kicked in because no, he's surrounded right. by it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Look, okay, so, so so kind of moving on, but staying kind of within the theme of, of, of like your work, yeah? You said to me off camera that you were actually doing civil liberties cases before the 24 hours, the first 24 hours yeah. in police custody. But really, what if, if uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, Attic, the 24 hours in police custody, the first one was kind of like a springboard. Yeah. That's when I started meeting brothers, like, brother, do you know Brother Attic from Luton? Yeah. You know Brother Attic from Liberty Law? Because of that show. And then obviously you had the recent appearance as well. Um, how do you balance that? How do you balance doing civil liberty cases to criminal defence cases? The criminal defence cases, um, I just see as business. So I do my best job, my firm, whatever, as work. It's not a cause that I believe in. The civil liberties is a cause that I believe in. So one, one third of my personal practice is I don't charge for it. It's only civil liberties. To bring change, it's like Sadhguru in a way, yeah. Well, accept it from you because bro. none mm. of us are perfect. Yeah, and anyone course. who makes that day, I do full of it. Mm. And you know, we all got to strive in it, hundred percent. And and for me, that's something I feel. So people say to me, if you ever, when you're going to retire from law, or your career, what you're going to do? And I've always said to people that the money making is the criminal side of it. 
But the social justice side is something that I feel passionate about. Mm. And that's probably I'd like to carry on whether I'm you know, working full time or not because that's part of us. You know, mm. it's something that I believe in. And that's a difference. So the and, and what happened is, as you said, when the spotlight came on, when people started Googling oh, you know, what we're about and what we do, and then that allowed us to bring our other cases to the, to the foray. So um, we were doing social justice cases before, but we were relying on the media to pick it up. Some did, some didn't. Mm-hmm. Because of 24 hours in police custody. That brought you and Liberty you, Law into the. Yeah, what it did, it gave me access to journalists in yeah. mainstream media. Yeah. And then since then, we've developed a process. When we run a social justice campaign, we operate a multi pronged approach, mm. a three step approach. Yeah. We what we do is we have the lawyers mm. working in collaboration with the um, underground campaigners, mm. working in collaboration with mainstream journalists, and that way what we do, and this is something we as fighting against homophobia learned very early on, is that the battle of Islamophobia is a battle of hearts and minds, it's a battle of narratives. Hundred percent. And the way to fight narratives is to lead the narrative, and the way to lead the narrative is to have trusted journalists on your side. And so we utilize that to then, in a battle against Islamophobia and discrimination, by having access to high level journalists who can get stuff out in the media, mainstream media, mm. quick. Can I ask you a question? And, and I'm sorry if it causes any offense. Do you ever feel conflicted with the fact that the bulk of your money is coming from criminal defense? Yeah, your, your words, not mine. And so it's coming from. Individuals who may or may not be mm. within that particular industry or lifestyle, mm. but then you're doing this very noble and laudable work of social justice. Do you ever internally feel conflicted? The only time I feel conflicted, and because of around my own practice, I have the um, good you know fortune of being able to deal with it. The only time I feel conflicted is if um, someone's done something which I just is just very sits very hard with me, like. You know, like um, this child sex stuff. Okay. Like so okay. I don't, I, I shy away from all of that. <coughs> with the other cases, generally, and that's just a personal thing. It's, you know, the reason I don't feel conflicted is this. Um, many years ago, um, as a brother, he he's very well known um, in Bedford and Luton. He's a Bengali uh, barrister from East London, okay. top brother. He um, is one of the few uh, lawyers who's done a lot of work with Islamic jurisprudence. And I had, as you might know, I do my own radio show sometimes. Mm. I had him on there. And he actually made an excellent point there. Is that we always talk about the Magna Carta, which is what English jurisprudence is based on. But he said the Magna Carta came very recently. If you look at it in terms of years, it's only a couple of hundred years or something. Yeah, it's not that that old. So what, what was there before the Magna Carta, right? And what was there in the world... Before Bagna Carter, it would have been the Islamic. It would have been Islamic, the Islamic. It was the, the Islamic framework. Islamic framework, and the Islamic framework is part of that in terms of justice and you know criminal um, processes. Yeah. A fundamental part of it is a the vakil's role. So effectively, the vakil's role to test evidence and to check the evidence against the accused is correct or not is a fundamental part and is a right mm. under Islamic jurisprudence. And also the whole principle that the accuser has to bring evidence to support their... Against the, against the accused. Against the accused. Yes. So that process is enshrined within my belief system. Tika, let me let me chuck something at you then. Mm. That's fine. I agree with you 100%. 
anyone who's had a cursory reading of Magna Carta and the setup of the criminal justice system in the Western civilization, they will find very easy that its roots, its inspiration, its skeleton actually came from the Islamic civilization. Right, yeah. The concept of justice, fairness, uh, you know, the right to a fair trial, right to a fair trial amongst your peers and equals and so forth. We know that what happens, and I've asked criminal defense lawyers this as well. Muslim criminal defense lawyers, I've asked them this, yeah. What do you do in a situation where you know he's committed that crime? So the way it works he's is... He's confessed to you, I'm doing it. I need, I think I've done this, bro. I need you to cover me now. Walk on. Yeah, so this is how it works, right? Let's just... Uh, and you might think I've been clever with words, but I'm not. Let's just go back to the Islamic test, yeah? Yep. The test is, from the Islamic jurisprudence and in the current world, that the accuser has to bring evidence, yeah? So... What the defense attorney is, is supposed to be doing is testing that evidence. That case from the CPS. Testing the evidence, yeah. yeah. So if someone is asked to enter a plea, they don't have two options, they have three. They can enter a plea of guilty, not guilty, and no plea. Mm. That's the third option. Okay. No plea is an interesting concept which a lot of people aren't aware of. The no plea is what you say, I'm not saying I'm guilty or not guilty. I'm not saying anything. Mm. But what I am saying, if you're saying I've done it, prove it. Okay. No, I've got you there. Right? And the reason that's interesting is, someone could say to me, Atik, um, I've done it, but I don't want to admit it. Because my job, I'm not a judge. The judge has his own role. The judge decides on punishment and sanction. My job as a lawyer is to present a case honestly, truthfully, mm. And also to advise my client on what the law is. If you've done a crime, you ask me a teagle what am I looking at or whatever, I advise you, okay? Now, if someone says to me, I've done it, but I don't wish to plead guilty, then the option open to me is that I say to them, okay, um, in that case, um, I can't advance a not guilty plea. I can't, as an advocate, stand in court and say, my client, members of the jury, is not guilty because I've now been told he is guilty. So I can't run a not guilty trial. Mm. I've only got two options left. Now, whether people personally, whether Muslim or non-Muslim lawyers decide to not do this and cover people, that's their own individual decision. Mm. But if you follow proper form, what you're supposed to do, the process is that if they've admitted to you, you can still run a trial, but you just simply cannot say the person is not guilty. Yeah, You can run it on the basis of what the prosecution actually proved. You okay. remember the jury have to decide... Not whether he's innocent or guilty. You, as members of the jury, have to decide whether, uh, uh, based on the prosecution's case, mm. you can be sure mm. he is guilty or not guilty. And if you cannot be sure, then under the law, you have to acquit. That's how it, it's a very fine line. But, and but, I get you. but that's I, I how get, it works. And I get where you're coming from. Yeah. And 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 let's be honest about it, bro. You know, when it comes to these kind of very deep, complex uh, issues, even the Sharia has. I wouldn't say loopholes, but there's many kind of... Uh, it's very complex in the way you can navigate around it. Mm. So what you're essentially saying here is that it's not necessarily defending a guilty criminal. It's essentially testing the case against him or her. That's exactly what it is. That's my job. And that's very, very important. Yeah. Um, because I'll give you an example. Someone um, has a fight with knives, kills two or three people. Mm. Yeah. It's caught bang to rights. Police arrive. It's on camera. Yeah. Mm. 
He might say to you, brother, I've done it. I'm guilty. The whole world is saying you're guilty. You killed three people. You've done it. But then you you don't just take that at face value because to commit an offense, there's a lot of different ingredients. You can generally genuinely have people, and I've had this many times, who genuinely believe they've done it and they are guilty. And I said, okay, let me just listen to what you did, why you did it, and how it happened. And when they've taken you through the journey of their mindset, of what they were thinking at each stage, you realize actually they're not, while principally, morally, what's happened is bad, someone's died or whatever. In law, they're not actually guilty. Because their motive or intent isn't what's being claimed against them. Yes, yeah. or they acted on mistake. Acha, okay. So they might feel guilty. Yeah. The world might think they're guilty, but in law they're not. So, for example, I'm walking along the street mm. and someone attacks me. I think they've got a knife, they have it. Right? I grab a weapon or knife or whatever. I can see. We have a fight, the person dies. On the assumption that you thought he had a knife? Yeah. Okay. We find out it was a borrow pen. Oh. Brother, I'm guilty, man. I had a knife, he didn't have nothing, I killed him. Yeah. But that's not the test. The test is subjective. What were you thinking at the time? You thought, mate, you had a knife. And if genuinely that's what I thought, yeah. and the jury agree with that, whether the world likes it or not, I'm not guilty because I have acted in self-defense. Mm. That's crazy, man. That's just one example. You know, if you go into the world of law, mm. all different types of... And so this is the other thing. You... The world or people might themselves might think that they're guilty, but that's because they don't understand what the case against them actually is, mm. what the ingredients of the offense are. And again, that process you need a specialist to go through to determine is the person guilty. And the other side of it is this um, you might have many situations where people um, don't want to go to prison and don't want to plead guilty, but they need to understand that sometimes there is no other way out. You know, you've done the crime. You are going to have to serve time. Yeah. And the way the system is built is you get credit if you plead guilty early on in, and you can identify what you're actually guilty of because often the prosecution, what they do, they layer it up. Mm. You know, they might, someone might have a, have a fight with somebody um, and they might say, oh, it was honor-based violence. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, you know, just because yeah. you're Muslim or something. It's yeah. honor-based violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an aggravating feature. Yeah, yeah. So you might plead guilty to the offense, but not to the facts. Yeah, yeah. So then you'd have a trial on the facts of the guilty, what are you actually guilty of? This is very complex. So you can have someone pleading guilty to beating someone up, okay, mm. ABH or GBH, but was it on a base or not? And that's a trial within a trial. It's called a Newton hearing. That's crazy. So there's a lot of complexities in it. So, yeah. Okay, okay so, so... It's going to be deep now. So. No, 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 I like that. No, no, thoroughly enjoyed it. And, 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 I, and I got that. I, I, I totally get, get what you're saying. And, and I'm going to just reiterate for our viewers and listeners... In case I misunderstood it, what you're saying is that it's not as simple as a criminal saying that I'm guilty and therefore my conscience would not allow me to defend him. It's more of a case of what's the actual evidence against him or her? What are the specific charges? And are they guilty of those charges? Am I correct? Yeah, and do the prosecution have sufficient evidence yeah. to prove that? Okay, cool. Got you. Kind of bringing the podcast to a close, I want to ask you something. The most recent appearance in 24 Hours Police Custody involved your client and the other party. Um, locals and even people in Bedford know that essentially they're from one family, right? Of same, same area. Mm. How does that run with you in the sense that have you ever faced any kind of awkward situations where you've represented 
uh, a party in Luton against another party in Luton, or in a case where it involves two people, two thing. Do you do you ever have to say no to these cases, or has it ever brought you any kind of dramas? Well, yourself? the thing is because. I mean, I forget sometimes how long I've been doing it, but I've been in the game now. Um, when I say the game, as in, even before I was a solicitor, I was still working for a law firm training. Yeah. So if you look at the total period, I've been doing it for about 20 years now. Inshallah. And I remember when I first started doing it, the local gangs that were in Luton, um, a lot of brothers used to come to me. Yeah. And we, I used to run cases from my front room, having breakfast, playing PlayStation. I was only in my early 20s then. Wow. Whatever. And you can imagine that the people that were representing them at that stage um, were... Um, young, so they were having issues with other people in the town, yeah. which also I knew, and so it's something that I've had to deal with for a very long time. And I think because of that, people understand that we're acting in a professional capacity. Obviously, if it's very close to home, like the other party, somebody. But, you, but you know, our people don't understand can't. close to home, bro. Yeah. Our people sometimes is it you know come to you practically part of the furniture now when you come inside they don't understand close. So sometimes we try and, when I was at the law firm at Dio Valenti for two years. Sometimes our people don't understand a conflict of not being able to represent them because of something else. Mm. So you literally become that go-to person for everything. Yeah. So what happens? What I'm saying to you: Have you ever been in a situation where? There's two parties or multiple parties, and you've had to represent one over the other, but you know both parties and these kind. Of if I feel uncomfortable, then I just tell them straight because it, I, I gauge it, don't I? Yeah. And for example, um, there was a case where somebody was driving dangerously in Luton, and they ran people over because they were running away from the police. And then the people that they ran over, some of the people were families that I knew. Mm. So when that person got arrested and was asking for help. I had to say to him, listen, mate, I don't feel comfortable. Yeah. Victims of this, I know personally. Um, so it depends on the dynamics. So if there can be situations... Have you said no to jobs? Yeah, have you? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, in the past, yeah. Okay. And have you ever personally felt, not heat, but but, but, but just like even something as com passing comments at weddings, at places like that, because you're representing one side over the other? Have you ever had that? No, generally, no, actually. Our community has been quite, quite good. Thing. And it's funny, though, actually. I mean, you talk about comebacks. I remember mm. one situation where I was representing a, a large, uh, the head of a large organized uh, Eastern European crime group, and uh, our relationship went a bit sour. So he started, uh, he, his family sent their heavies to Luton, but they said, um, we can't go into that area without speaking to the head boys in Luton. Yeah. So they didn't tell them who it was. They said, there's a guy we need to go and speak to. Can you come with us? Because it's your turf. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They said, okay, fine. So they all went and they came to my office and knocked on the door. And they said, oh, here we see Atik Malik. Yeah. When they said that, the other guys realized, actually, this is Atik. Is you know, Atik? really well, whatever. Yeah. They said, sorry, my guys, it's not going to happen. because." So in that way, because of the community we work in, yeah. there's a saying that I've always believed in. I actually put it on LinkedIn this morning because yeah. my supervisor trained me in East London yeah. put a post up and I congratulate me on something. So I responded to him. What he said to me many years ago is this If you look after your community Your community will always look, look after, after you. you That's what I've operated on And I've seen it work firsthand Repeatedly yeah. So I think because of that You know The situation's good Wicked um, You've been nominated for some awards right? Yeah so I was nominated for uh, Solicitor uh, Prior Practice of the Year Alhamdulillah um, 2021 um, And I received um, a high commendation Alhamdulillah from them, And basically It was really good actually Because they actually um, made reference to what's really close to my heart, which is the social justice work. Wicked. And so to me, that was just for the law society to recognize our social justice work, which includes prevent, 
you know, anti-prevent work, includes Islamophobia, things discrimination. Which, things we generally speak and they, they kind of stayed away uncomfortable from. Uncomfortable, yeah. It's brilliant. And what was also interesting, and it could be this, three weeks, no, four weeks prior to the awards announcement, I broke a story about discrimination in the judicial appointment process. Okay. Between, uh, with Asian judges and black judges. Mm. And when I, before I did it, a lot of, um, I had some judges, different level of high court and other judges approach me anonymously and say, look, can you help us and bring this to light? A lot of lawyers and other people, barristers said, don't do it, it's going to harm your career. This, that. I said, look, we've got to stand for the huck, the truth. I, said, I don't really care. Good. It's happening, I'm going to investigate it, I'm going to get to the bottom and I'm going to spotlight it. The week after I did it, the head of the law society did a speech and quoted what, what I said, word Wicked. for word, and said, this needs to be addressed, we're not going to hide from it anymore. Smashed so it. alhamdulillah, it's, um, it's interesting how when you challenge things and you keep pushing, the truth is always stronger than falsehood. It will always prevail. And it will always prevail. And I think we should be fearless in that respect and not be scared. Do, let me, look, I know today's podcast has been a lot about the criminal defence aspect of it. And I, and, and I guess why that is, is because even though this is the first time we've properly yeah. met and spent time with each Which other. Which is shocking because we've overlapped so many Loads of overlaps, yeah, bro. Yeah. We've had so many lo- loads of overlaps from, from mutual friends and contacts and friends and, and, and so, so forth. But you know the social justice aspect of it, mm. yeah? Um, the fact that your work has required sometimes to engage with or like the likes of Cage or Prevent Watch. And mm. I know we have mutual friends, very good friends from these respective organisations. You were with Roshan at a dinner recently, yeah. alhamdulillah. Um a lot of lawyers would shy away from that. Yeah, they, they, they don't want to get into, or at least for many years, bro, they didn't want to get into that murky business of prevent. Um, if we even know that non-Muslim civil liberty groups only have recently joined, recently, yeah, yeah, because now it's fashionable yeah. to criticize prevent. It's fashionable because everyone and their uncles and their societies are talking about it. Mm. But let's be ta- let's be frank about it. For the best part of 10, 15 years, it was not fashionable. No, it wasn't. So, what would you say? Bringing the podcast to a close, what words of advice would you give to aspiring lawyers or, 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 or lawyers who are Muslims who are already lawyers, um, activists, about not fearing the blame of the blamers? Like, 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 just like not fearing the fact that, oh, your career may go wayward or, you know, you, you're putting your career at risk by talking about certain issues. Or what would your advice be in overcoming the issue of fear? And career when it comes to social justice issues. Well, you see, the, the role of a lawyer when you talk about criminal defence is like you're a shield mm. for the people being defended. But when it comes to social justice, I'd say the role of a lawyer is to be the sword of justice. And the sword of justice cannot stay sheathed. It has to be taken out. And if, you, if all you're going to do, you know, when you, as a lawyer, you've got skill sets, which the average person doesn't have. You can take for granted easily when getting involved with billing, this, that, the other. But if you take a step back, you know, you've got massive responsibility as an office, as someone who's, you know, got skills in, in the law to shape the law. This country's legislation, uh, laws, sorry, are built not just on legislation, but case law. Yeah. And case law can even overturn legislation sometimes. Am I correct for our viewers? This is when a particular outcome of a case is used as a precedent. Yeah, okay. that's right. Okay. But there's two courts in this country, actually the world, which are important. Mm. The courts of law are very important, but it's not just about winning a case in court of law. There's a court that's more powerful than a court of law. That's the court of public opinion. Mm. And sometimes you can bring a case, you know it's going to lose. But because getting it out there and showing the fight will, will, will inspire others and show the powers that be that you're not going to go away quietly, that in itself can bring change. So it's not about winning or losing, it's about fighting for the cause. 
And as lawyers, you got a big responsibility. It's not just about building a career. And, and and as a Muslim, if you're a Muslim, remember, all outcomes are already predetermined. 100%. We have to put our effort in. So if it's de- predetermined that you're going to be his honor judge sitting wherever, you don't need to be scared of it. You just need to stand for justice. Because even the non-Muslims, this is a funny thing, you know, I've operated with so many campaigners, uh, justice campaigners and all the rest of it. Many of them are non-Muslim, majority of them in the country. So one, one prominent... Uh, brother who's who, who also is In that field We both know him He said that The Muslim Lawyers Association For many years He goes for many years He goes He goes Their contribution And their He goes And, their, and, and he goes their, their, their lack of courage When we needed them really Wasn't there He said He said It was sadly Led by non-Muslim lawyers And sisters Who were kind of Leading the way is it not the case that it's okay for a white non-Muslim lawyer to do that? Because they don't have to deal with, you know, uh, Gareth Pierce doesn't have to deal with what Attic may have to experience or what my yeah, brother Zillow has to experience. Yeah, in that way it's a bit easier, yeah. yeah but the easier point c- is this, yeah. we, we, let's look at it from a belief system, of what we believe. Mm. We should be fearless, mm. not fearful of the 100%. creation. 100%. End of. 100%. You know, if we truly embrace our principles, what are we fearing? That's true. You know, and with Muslim Lawyer Association, can I just say this? You're absolutely right. They were very weak. But over the last three, four years... I've been working behind the scenes in collaboration with them and the currently Things Muslim Lawyers Association are really good. Wicked. They're anti-prevent. Alhamdulillah. Right? They've been conducting studies which um, haven't come into the forefront yet but they've been working on legal definitions of what is Islamophobia, is it racism or not. They've been doing some really good work. Um, um, and so I would say the current Muslim Law Association is a very different beast to what it used to be. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And Jazakallah Khair for clarifying that. I think just again, just to issue a clarity, to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you uh, said that. You yeah, said that. To begin I agree with, with that. The, the, the formative years of this association yeah. where one would have assumed that they would have been at the forefront it yeah. wasn't the case until very recently. It mirrors our community, doesn't it? Alhamdulillah, yeah. Let's look at it. It's all the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first generation. Yeah. We're compliant. Yeah, compliant. And then it takes years to form a kind of a, a, a noble, rebellious streak. Yeah. Is that what it is? Attic, my dear brother, it's an absolute pleasure having you on. Now, Jazakallah, thank no, you very no. much for having me on. No, 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 real you. pleasure sitting with you properly yeah. like this. No, no, and likewise. To have an opportunity. No, no, inshallah. And, and please, bro, I hope this is the first of many times we have you on. Inshallah. I know that. Know that arm wrestle. Look at the size of Attic's arm. Of course, he's gonna snap my arm. <laughs> you no, have I've got a lot of injuries. I can't. You can't. Yeah, I've got a lot of injuries. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. And I haven't got enough barn to this offer. This is him. a husk from a previous life. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just finished. Like how, it, how are you injured? Because I know you spoke about. I've got. Yeah, I've got quite a few. Just you know, as you get older, your your heart and mind say you can do things, but yeah. your body just gives up with that warning. Yeah. So I've got that broken uh, ligaments and. May Allah give you shifa, my bro. Well you, well, well, you don't think I was sitting there looking at Attic's arms, thinking, "How is this gonna fare?" Yeah, and then I remembered he's got injuries, and I thought, "My luggage is far." So basically, the Blood Brothers challenge—I don't know if you ever watched it—was there's three challenges: yeah. arm wrestle yeah. with me, you have to have pawn yeah. with me, or you have to try this thing called naga. Yeah, it's like a marcha. chili man. It's gonna kill yeah, me. it's a marcha, but it just happens to be the case that he's injured, and we don't have two of those things. So That's I'm sorry, yeah, you pulled the squeeze. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, friends and foes, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed today's podcast as much as I did, especially the Bedfordians and the Lutonians uh, who will be uh, tuning in. Like this video, leave a comment, share it, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, and of course you can find us on all the major audio platforms. And until next time, Assalamualaikum Warahmatullahi Wabarakatuh. Blood Brothers Podcast, Five Pillars Production.